The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we got two for the price of one. The co-authors of this great new book, Autism and the Employment Act, which I just started reading. And I got some questions for you guys. And we got Mike Burnick, my friend from the ASEN group out in San Francisco. And uh, Lou Vismar, one of the founders of the Mind Institute out there in California. And we're going to let, just to so if I can see if I can tick off Mike a little bit, we'll let Lou go first. Lou, you introduce yourself properly to our audience, please. Well, it's a real pleasure and privilege, and uh, and thank you so much, Hacky, and uh, for facilitating this and for the great work that you're doing, getting the word out there. Um, let's see, where where shall I begin? I'm actually an immigrant. I was born in Italy. I was telling Hacky I came to the United States when I was uh, six years old. I grew up in the San Diego area. Uh, always wanted to be a physician. Uh, went to college in the Bay Area. Went to med school down in Houston, Texas, and then uh, came to Sacramento to do my cardiology fellowship uh, and have been in Sacramento ever since. Uh, we have four kids. Our youngest um, is a boy and was Mark, uh, Mark was born in 1993. And a couple of years later, he was diagnosed with autism. And again, during the first couple of years, it was the usual uh, issue of, uh, of taking him to pediatricians and being told that Einstein didn't talk until he was five years old, and he had three sisters who did all the talking for him, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, by by when he was about eighteen months of age, his language was still not coming in, and it was very clear um, that there was something that was not right. So I went to my pediatric textbook, which I still had, which was written in the late sixties, and among the various developmental disabilities, there was about a a paragraph that was maybe three inches long talking about autism, indicating that it was an extremely rare, rare disorder, one in 10,000 unknown cause, et cetera, and that was about the extent of it. Well, being a cardiologist and being a physician, I somewhat have a, uh, a very obsessive and compulsive streak, and Hacking in our introduction was just saying that I, I probably am also on the spectrum, to which I, my wife constantly tells me. So I really, uh, I, it really concerned me that see, seeking out various professions, and again, being a physician, we're really privileged to have access to the latest medical care. And again, since I was a cardiologist and had done my training in, in Houston, I kept asking myself, where is the Michael DeBakey of, of autism? Certainly, in in this, you know, in this extensive leading area of of research, there must be someone. Who was doing, you know, cutting-edge research on on autism back then, in in the mid '90s, the NIH, I found out, much to my dismay, was spending a total of seven million dollars for autism research throughout the whole country. Seven million dollars, and certainly we were in the midst of of the uh, beginning of the autism epidemic. So again, to make a very long story short. Uh, with the support of some incredible families and, and friends and resources, we were able to finally convince the University of California Davis that there was a real need 
for a, a research entity, and that was the beginning of the of the Mind Institute. So that's basically my my story in a nutshell, and I look forward to uh, sharing more of this journey uh, with all of you. So thanks again, uh, Hackett, for having me on. Well, Lou, thank you. It's a great story. And then we're going to see where the Mind Institute is today, later. Now, Mike Burnick, you're up at bat, even though you're an old hand here. Tell us your story. Well, Hackett, as you know, I've been involved in the autism community since uh, my son, William, was diagnosed back in 1991. And um, Lou and I um, met back in the late 90s when I was in Sacramento as head of our state labor department. And we've been working together now for over two decades. And um, the book that we'll be discussing is really a collaboration uh, summary of our collaboration and sort of what we've learned and what we see going forward. Well, you know, the policies that you guys are making and attempting to make a reality. You know, policy making is very difficult stuff, very difficult stuff because you have to make it happen. Um, going back a little ways before much was known about autism and it still really bothers me to this day that MDs get zero training in this stuff and pediatricians. I mean, I hope it's changing and I see it changing a little bit. And you guys have been the forefront of getting the word out and helping making things change. When I wrote the Asper Tools book, when I got, had my aha moment and started learning things about everything, that it was not just Asperger's or autism. It was all the mental health issues and neurological issues and it's all our different brains. So we started differentbrains.org and now we've got everything under one roof. And I saw you struggling with the same thing and actually naming your book because you start out with the Autism Full Employment Act, right? And then you go down and it says, the next stage of jobs for adults with autism, ADHD, and other learning and other mental health differences. And I see that you in writing this book were having some of that same struggle because it's not just autism. Would you guys care to comment on that? I'll just say that, uh, you know, to me, autism is a very broad umbrella designation. You know, it's kind of like some other entities that we have in healthcare and medicine when we describe heart disease. Well, what what is heart disease? You know, it can be congestive heart failure, it can be coronary artery disease, it can be arrhythmias, it can it can encompass a broad array. So, to me, autism, and I think it's one of the real values, challenges, and opportunities. It, it is that it is a very um, uh, very broad. But it is precisely because of the broad and unique nature. And one of the things that really fascinates me about autism, at least from my own personal experiences with my son, is that it can not only change the manifestations, can not only change with time, but very often I see my son within a period of a very short period of time 
actually changing his functional capacity, how he interacts with the world, sometimes for the good, sometimes for not the good. So I see autism, again, as kind of a pathway to really understand how different brains work because of the very unique nature and because it encompasses such a wide array of functioning. I don't know if that's helpful. It is helpful. Mike, what do you have to say about that? Well, Hacky, you've been emphasizing um, not only autism, but the broader concept of neurodiversity. It's, as we've discussed previously, it's a protean term um, and um, sort of in some ways hard to pin down since we're all, neuro our brains are different. Um, but um, as Lou indicated, what we're trying to do here is to um, address really, I would say two things. One, the book addresses some of the comorbidities. Many of the people in our community, many of us have comorbidities, um, that is other mental health issues in particular that are neurologically connected to autism, but also separate. So we try to address, Lou has a chapter on what are these comorbidities and how they can be addressed, or at least some of the approaches, um, current thinking on that. And then, as you say, the, there's such an overlap with autism and some of the same employment challenges for people with ADHD, um, mental health, other learning differences in terms of fitting into the current labor market. And that's really what much of the book is about, how to fit in. How do we build a better structure of helping people fit in? And as individuals, how do we work with perhaps family members? How do you see the uh, what to me is these COVID times have put everything on steroids, okay? So now we have the additional factor of the neurodivergent individual who's gotten used to working at home, working remotely, and now has to go through perhaps another transition into their job, which may either become a hybrid of the two or might go back to the bricks and mortar model, depending on their job. How do you see this as an extra wave? Well, I would just start by saying that most of the people in our SEND group um, were in jobs that aren't, or have been in jobs that aren't remote hacky and were laid off, were very unhappy. Um, I think I certainly drove my son um, has been finally back in an in-person for the last six months. But um, um, I think our people are looking forward to having some place to go every day, some structure to get out of the house. So I think that'll be very positive. That's why I, I, um, I think at least among our ascend group, there's less interest in jobs that are more, you know, more interest in jobs that allow them to go someplace. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing Lou, what are your thoughts on that? Well, exactly as, as both of you said is, uh, you know, there's a saying that never let a crisis go to waste. And perhaps, you know, with the labor shortage that currently exists, uh, perhaps, you know, we can be in, in our loved ones and the people that we care about uh, with the neurodiverse population can actually be an important part of the economic recovery. 
one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is finding opportunities and job sectors which can be open to individuals with a broad array of abilities and limitations. And, and as I mentioned uh, earlier, our son Mark is 28 years of age. He is nonverbal. He's had behaviors in the past. Um, and he would be classified as, and again, not to stereotype or whatever, but he needs a lot of support. He's never gonna get a job working at Google. He's never gonna get a job at a computer. He would probably have, uh, have difficulties working in a department store because of the type of supports. But one of the things that we've done with, with Mark is actually identify various activities, like he really loves to cook. And uh, he, he loves to prepare food, et cetera. And once there is a structure and once it's repetitive and once it's identified, he does well. He can do well. So actually, Mike and I started a, a pilot program before COVID where we were able to place 18 young adults, all with autism of varying abilities. And we specifically had them working uh, in an assisted living facility, long-term care service industry. And these individuals would go in into the culinary area. They would prepare the dining areas. They would help with the food preparation. And they would actually uh, help uh, in, in serving the food. And what was really rewarding was the fact that they were very, very functional. They really helped the staff. But what was really endearing was seeing the relationships that in some cases developed between the residents, the older adults, and these young individuals uh, with developmental disabilities. Uh, in many cases, the residents of the assisted facilities just literally enjoyed meeting, talking, and sometimes just sitting and watching TV with, with, with some of our workers. So uh, I'm really, and again, uh, we had to shut that down with COVID because of the restrictions uh, with volunteers, but I'm hoping we can resume that in the very, very near future. And again, trying to identify specific activities and work sectors uh, that are uh, amenable and available to people with, uh, uh, with neurodiverse individuals, I think is something that uh, to me is very exciting. I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on some of the counterintuitive and illogical rules of the game that are set up with the policies on SSDI and uh, that whole thing regarding employment, like uh, um, my, my limited understanding is such that, you know, like one of our interns who's uh, 56 years old said, you know, I'm not going to take a chance on that to give that up because then if I lose the job, I have to sit out five years before I can reapply and lots of stuff like that that you guys much more knowledgeable about than I. Can you, would you care to comment on that? I've been following this hacking since um, the 90s, and, and it's been an ongoing issue with both SSDI and SSI. And basically, the issue surrounds if you work and you begin to gain income, what A, what does that do to your total benefit amount? And what does it do to your health benefits, which are a key element that have won. And back in um, the Clinton administration, 
there was that was when the ticket to work was developed and the idea was we're going to um have this new process both to incentivize placements but also to reduce the in a sense work disincentive the work disincentive is an issue that you know we have throughout government benefit programs welfare food stamps um so um so people have been worried about this thinking about this well aware of the work disincentive now for um for several decades the and the changes have been made if you know if you look you know ssi and ssdi have gotten more liberal over the years in terms of how much you can earn um, or if you start earning how much you can keep um but you're right you talk to people today and it's still with all the government changes that have been made still a concern somewhat in terms of reduced income and as you identified um health benefits people are worried about their health benefits these are such enormous bureaucracies that most people say gee if i lose my health benefits and then i get unemployed again um i just can't go through that awful government ssi and ssdi bureaucracy i'm better off just keeping things as they are than losing them and getting them back and that's just an issue we need to as a community continue to address uh, but it, people have been aware of it for a while it's just that we haven't come up with any good way of doing it either with um income losing income or health benefits well it's uh it's a quandary, and so to some, the answer might be a single-payer health system. Uh, I can say as a physician, uh, when I was practicing orthopedics for 30 years, um, out of all the insurance companies and all the different plans and everything, uh, at least in those days, the ones that was the easiest to deal with, and your people didn't have to sit on the phone and argue and this and that, and you didn't need to jump through hoops to get permission, was Medicare. Medicare was the easiest thing, not Medicaid, Medicare. Somebody needed something, you ordered the test, you got it done. They paid, they paid you 10 cents on the dollar, but you still, you got paid, you know, and you could, you could plan things and do things. So at least from this physician's perspective, and I'm going back many years, you know, um, the private insurance companies have always been horrible. <laughs> No offense to the insurance company people out there, but you're horrible. <laughs> Get better, will you? Um, I find it so interesting that when we talk about autism, um, it's kind of always the, well, when you talk about any of these things, anything neurological, developmental, any of these differences, the one Thing and the most underrated player on the whole team is socialization, strong social relationships, where alone is not good, whether you're talking about Alzheimer's and dementia, autism, any of the mental health issues. And um, when they did the Harvard Longitudinal Study of 75 years, where they wanted to analyze the, the health aspects that really mattered towards your longevity and also toward your happiness and overall health. 
they thought it was going to be cardiac or cancer or something, diabetes. What blew everything away was strong social relationships. Exactly. You know? And uh, uh, it's amazing. So those of us with wives who will put up with us, I salute you, Don Corleone, because <laughs> you might be around. Um, but I'm seeing it more and more, you know, with uh, with dementia and Alzheimer's especially, but also with, uh, you know, everything we've been talking about and this despite everything else going on. Now, of course, genes play a tremendous part as well. I'm really glad you mentioned the issue of socialization because, again, you know, we're finding more about the mind-body connection, how it impacts the immune system, how it impacts brain function. But, you know, when we're talking about jobs and employment, it's really more than dollars and cents. I mean, you know, it's a reason why I think the three of us enjoy getting up in the morning, having a sense of purpose, having a sense of, of interacting with other folks. And our people who are neurodiverse, and again, we deal with this in the book as well, they need, they deserve, they need, and they can contribute. They can contribute to neurotypical individuals in, again, giving them that joy of life, that sense of purpose, and why we benefit every time we able to work and to do something. We not only contribute to ourselves, but we contribute to others. So thank you for mentioning the socialization hack. That is really an important issue. Well, are there any other uh, issues that we have not covered that you would like to address today? Well, I'd like to thank you for what you are doing. Uh, you bring a unique skill set of being a boxer. <laughs> uh, it looks like you didn't get hit in the head very often because... Oh. <laughs> Uh, I took some good beatings, 13 <laughs> wins, seven losses, six draws. Wow. And between my uh, my father having Alzheimer's and dementia and me playing rugby in 26 pro heavyweight fights, I think <laughs> I got a good shot at developing Alzheimer's and dementia. Well, don't do it for a long time because the service <laughs> and what you're doing. And uh, this has really just been very enjoyable, such a privilege. I can understand why why mike says you always bring a smile to his face and i want you to i want to thank you sincerely for bringing much joy happiness and a real smile to me uh as well it, it's been a, a true pleasure to participate and i look forward to our ongoing collaboration but thank you for getting the word out we really need it well dr luvis mara with all you're doing and the mind institute and everything i love it and keep up the great work Michael Burnick, what do you have to say? Tell him about the book, Mike. Tell him about the Yeah, the yeah. Book. Tell us about this book. Well, I, I, I always want to talk about the knockouts that, uh, that you bring, Hacky, but um, I will say something on the book. Um, it's uh, a relatively slim volume, but it, we try to cover, set out, you know, what are the um, various areas? How do we build greater um, employment in the private sector with large firms and small? Um, how do we do it particularly at universities and, and uh, large nonprofits um, and foundations that are not under the same market pressures that should be doing a lot, lot, lot more, especially hacky those universities that get research funding for autism but hire few people in our community. 
So um, the book addresses that. We do address um, employment for um, the more severely impacted because we believe there's a place in the labor market. It may not be in the current 14C structure. It may not be in the current congregate workshop um, structure, but um, there are other alternatives, um, even alternatives to competitive integrated employment that we discuss. And um, of course, as always, we discuss what we can do together as a community outside of government, that Tobillion um, Association of coming together and working together. And um, again, it just turns out to be a good time now in terms of resources, in terms of the rebuilding of our economy um, to try to both expand and improve our autism employment programs. How can people learn more about your book? Well, um, it is um, on Amazon and, um, and Barnes and & Noble and all the online. Um, so, or if they just Google it, the Autism Law Employment Act. Um, and, um, you know, of course, people, Lou and I both uh, are available on, you know, our emails are on the internet right out there. And I'm interested in, I know, Lou, you're interested in hearing from people directly. Yep. If they are, if they do get a copy of the book, I tell everyone, let me know and let me know your thoughts. All right. Well, I got my copy here. I got it from from Amazon. Now, Lou, can you, uh, um, how can people learn more about the Mind Institute? Yeah, if they just Google UC Davis, uh, UC Davis Health, uh, UCD Mind Institute, there's an excellent, excellent website. Uh, they're talking about the research projects. Uh, UC Davis Mind just uh, celebrated its, it's been in existence 23 years. It now receives more federal funding for autism. And it's not only autism, but it's a whole array of other developmental disorders. Uh, and there's extensive uh, uh, availability uh, on, on the internet as well. How can people learn more about your ASCEND group? Well, um, we do have a website, um, ascend.org. We welcome everyone, not only those- you spell in- that for those of us who don't spell too good? Well, it, it, it actually is a strange spelling. It's A-A-S-C-E-N-D.org. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's an acronym. And um, so, yes, we welcome um, our ascent to appearing from their board. And it's a group that's completely outside of government. It's adults on the spectrum, family members, and other advocates. What is one thing that people don't realize about neurodiverse employment? Well, that's a great question. It's a hard question to answer. Because one of the challenges and actually beauties of neurodiverse is the fact that it is so very, very different and that it changes not only among individuals, but individuals also change in time. Um, I guess the main thing that the one word that comes to mind as I struggle with that very, very good question, Hacky, is potential. I think there is tremendous potential for neurodiverse employment, both for the participants and the recipients, the employers and the employees. Um, I think 
neurodiverse employment can be inspirational, it can be fulfilling, and it can also result to productive change. If you, I, I'm a firm believer in systems changes, that you look at individuals, but you look at how individuals can contribute to the greater whole. And so if you have a factory or an employment or you know, an assembly line, whatever, and you make accommodations that will provide services and supports for neurodiverse individuals, I truly believe that you can actually improve the system for everybody and make it a better system. So I, I applaud and appreciate the difficult question. I would stick with potential for, uh, for improvement, the potential, the unfulfilled, the untapped potential that currently exists. It's a great opportunity for, for change. Well, Lou and Mike, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Keep up the great work you're doing out there with Ascend Mike Bernick and with the Mind Institute, Lou. Thank you both very much for all you're doing. Yeah. It's been a pleasure and privilege. Thank you. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.